This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. I want to talk about safety. Now, we have had discussions for a long time about bike lanes here in this Hamilton, and I know some people just are dead set against them. Well, here's why they should have them. People are dying on the streets right across Canada. I'm sure you've heard the stories over the last couple of days about the outrageous number of accidents. Well, they're not accidents. They're collisions involving bicycles in the Toronto area. We've had the same number here in Hamilton. Not the same numbers, but I mean the same concerns. Uh, it's it's a problem, and it's because, well, I, I'm not exactly sure if I can even put my finger on why it's happening. I have my suggestions, and I have my, my suspicions as to what's going on. But according to a StatsCan report, between 1994 and 2012, a total of 1,400 cycling collisions have occurred. Last year, there were 42 fatalities involving cyclists in Canada. This month, there's been at least five reported in the news. This is prompting a call, and I think a justifiable call, for more safety when it comes to cycling. Ryan McGrill has written extensively about this uh, on, with uh, Raise the Hammer. He is the editor of Raise the Hammer. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Ryan, good morning. How are you today? Good morning, Bill. I'm great. How are you doing? Uh, I'm great. I, I'm glad to have you with us again, although I wish it was under better circumstances. Uh, this is a, I, I don't think I'm under, overstating this, rather, to suggest this is a crisis situation. I, I think so. And I, 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 before we go any further, I really want to just take a moment to thank you for calling them collisions and not accidents. An accident is something that happens when uh, you butt the bed when you're five. Um, you know, when, when you're operating a 3,000 or 4,000-pound vehicle, uh, you can't afford the luxury of calling these things accidents. And we, we normalize the, the carnage and, and devastating loss of life and people's lives ruined uh, in collisions because we've kind of got this mentality, well, that's just the price of getting around. It's the price of convenience. Yeah, we'll, and, we, uh, have, we all have accidents from time to time, but you're right. Uh, you know, this is not knocking your coffee cup over in the morning. This is, uh, this is a collision, and, and oftentimes there are fatalities as a result. Exactly. And so a number of places around the world have decided that no loss of life is acceptable. You know, that they're, you know, uh, you know a couple of years ago, uh, Mayor of uh, Tory in Toronto said, you know, our goal is to reduce the number of collisions by 10%. You know, and the question becomes, okay, how do you go to the family of somebody who died and say, I'm sorry, uh, your loved one wasn't one of the 10% that we tried to save this year? Yeah, but the statistics that we've seen, Ryan, indicate the program in Toronto is not working. Well, the reason it's not working is that they're not doing anything. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can't just say we're a vision zero city and then magically the collisions uh, go away. You actually have to do things. If you look at cities that, you know, and countries around the world that have implemented the vision zero, and for, for listeners who aren't familiar, vision zero is, is a, a philosophical approach to reducing traffic collisions. And it's based on the idea that people are not perfect. We all make mistakes. We all get distracted. We all fail to notice things that are going on around us, all the various different things. Humans aren't especially good at the, the kind of expansive skill set that's necessary to drive safely all the time. And so sooner or later, we're going to make mistakes. And the idea behind Vision Zero is accept that people aren't perfect, accept that we make mistakes, and design the environment so that when one person makes a mistake, somebody doesn't die as a result of it. You know, even since we posted uh, that we were going to talk about this in the first hour, I, I'm getting tweets on this, and I, I'm sure you've heard these in the past, Ryan, but I, I think they're characteristic of some of the things that we need to be concerned about. Uh, one from Younger uh, at uh, CHML, Bill Kelly, says, I can tell you horror stories of what I've seen while riding my bike. I was cut off a few years ago by a car turning left. I had to wipe my bike out to avoid the collision. The guy yells back at me, I got the right away. 
And he said, no, you don't. You're turning left, and as such, you need to yield. There's a lack of respect for cyclists, and I'm not suggesting all motorists do it, but a lot of them do. And, uh, you know, even if you know the rules of the road and understand, okay, this is what the law says, there's usually an expectation, whether you're a motorist or a cyclist, that most people are going to obey those rules, but that doesn't always happen. I think most people, most of the time, are pretty reasonable in how they operate, whether you're walking or whether you're riding a bike or whether you're driving a car. The problem is there's a lot of people doing that all the time, and every now and again, one person does something wrong, another person doesn't notice fast enough, and then bang, you've got a collision. And if that collision is between a person in a car and a person on a bike, things are going to go pretty badly for the person on the bike. Uh, now, if it's between people in cars, uh, quite you know, there was a horrible collision in Hamilton uh, just, uh, I believe it was yesterday or the day before. Yeah, yeah. Uh, two cars appeared to be racing on Queenston Road in the middle of the afternoon, and we can have a separate conversation about why it's possible to be driving at such a reckless, dangerous high speed on a city street in the middle of the day. But the fact is, you know, a woman was killed, also in a car. So this is not a drivers versus cyclists. This is not a war on cars or anything like that. This is about making streets safer for every single person who has to use that street to get where they're going in that day. And and that's why there is a, a broader discussion about how we're going to do this and about, about cycling infrastructure. And I know some people still just don't seem to get it. But... <laughs> I, I've been quite upfront about this. I mean, when I was a kid, I mean, I, I didn't own a bike, but I, you know, I had a big family, but I had lots of other kids. I was afraid to ride on the street because of, of, of the, the lack of respect that the drivers show for cyclists. And as an adult, I still see this on a daily, weekly basis, that they just don't seem to respect cyclists. They think, you know what you're entitled to, Mr. Cyclist or Ms. Cyclist, about six inches on the side of the road. And if you can't do it, then get off the road. That seems to be the attitude a lot of people take. Sure. Get a car, you bum. Yeah, exactly. Uh, now, it's, you know, if you look around the world, you know, I, I, I always believe in if we want to be, you know, Hamilton, our vision is to be the best, right? The best place to raise a child, the best place to do business, the best place to engage. Uh, not, you know, we want to be a bit better than we are now. We want to be the best. So if you want to be the best, then look at places that are doing the best and understand what they're doing and adapt those things to to our city. When it comes to cycling, if you go back to the 1970s and the 1980s, uh, there are a number of European cities which now are considered cycling meccas. You know, they've got 40, 50, 60 percent bicycle uh, mode share. It's unbelievable. But if you wind back just a few decades, those cities looked an awful lot like Hamilton. Most trips were by car. Cycling was very rare. There was no cycling in- infrastructure. Um, in Copenhagen and in Amsterdam, which are sort of the two uh, flagship cities, if you go back to the 1970s when the oil crisis hit uh, and suddenly became a lot more expensive to buy gas, those cities realized, you know what, we need to encourage people to ride bikes because it's a more sustainable way to get around. The number of bike collisions uh, skyrocketed and people were getting injured and killed, and people were outraged, and they actually marched on City Hall and said, you need to do something. So those cities started building a world-class network of protected, physically separated cycling facilities. They unwound bikes and cars, so you don't have to do that dance where you kind of kind of avoid each other. And as a result, they've got the highest levels of ridership in the world. I mean, there's no reason other than political why we couldn't do something similar in Hamilton. Well, we need to be doing it. And and I know that there's this hue and cry every time another bike lane is instituted. The latest one, I guess, was Bay Street, and that was a couple of months ago now. But there's, I, I'm still getting emails, and I'm sure you get feedback. At, at, I just raised the hammer. People saying, well, you know, there's, I never see anybody on them because it's not always safe. I mean, it's, it's, it's better than it used to be. You know, they paint a green section there, and that's supposed to be, okay, cars stay away from there. 
But the, the safest way to do this, frankly, is to put a barrier between the vehicular traffic and the cyclist. And I know it's not practical to do that in all situations, but boy, where you can, you, I, we pretty much have to. And well, and, and the thing about our, even the best kind of flagship cycling infrastructure we have in Hamilton is we're building the way those European cities mentioned, uh, that I mentioned, we're building 20, 30 years ago. You know, we're instead of going straight to their best practices now, we're kind of following them behind and making the same mistakes they did. They've already learned from the mistakes. We could learn from them as well. Now, if you look at the Canon cycle track, it's probably the best piece of cycling infrastructure we have in the city. It is physically protected, although I, I would prefer to see better protection. Now, there's no protection through intersections, and uh, uh, that's where 80% of actually of the collisions in the last couple of years have happened in just three intersections along that route. But the number of cyclists went from basically zero to almost 1,000 trips a day, uh, and the traffic flow for cars actually improved slightly. So there's this idea that we have to sacrifice something in order to create cycling infrastructure. I disagree with it. The evidence says that we can have both and that we can actually make the streets safer for everybody by doing that. But as you've articulated, Ryan, there are better ways. There is a prototype. There are a number of prototypes that other cities around the world have done, which, which begs the question, do we actually have the will here to do it? Or are we just talking the talk? Well, you know, like we like we saw in Toronto two years after... Uh, Mayor Ford announced that Toronto was a vision zero city. They've had 93 traffic fatalities in the past two years. It's easy to, you know, and, and Hamilton, and you and you and I have talked about this in the past, we're great for making plans, we're great for having master plans and vision statements and, and for having strategies, and then we put them on the shelves with all the other ones, and we, don't, we continue to do things the way we've done them all along. Every new street that we build, we should be building that as a complete street right off the bat. You know, and every time we resurface a street, we should be adding in infrastructure to make it safer for everybody. But we don't. We just replace what's already there, and we wonder why our our targets aren't getting any better. Well, and, you know, the, I, I know that this is like the poster child for this whole thing. It was the Claremont Access. Uh, and, of course, we had a fatality there with Mr. Ketty a couple of years ago and uh, just riding home from work on his bicycle, and he was he was run down and killed. Uh, and, and, of course, we've got a road that's under major reconstruction and redesign. And at first they thought, no, they weren't going to put a, a bike lane in. And I thought, why not? This is the perfect opportunity. Now they finally decided to do it. It's not done yet. But, but it just seems as if we don't seem to have the mindset. Uh, you're absolutely right. We're talking the talk right now. But every time we have an opportunity to do this, there's so much pushback that the council shies away from it and says, well, maybe not then. Well, and it's pushed back from a few angry people who are afraid of change and they're afraid of the unknown. They, they assume, you know, there's, there's a lot of assumptions. The assumption is that the street will be worse. It's going to take me longer to where I'm, to get where I'm going. The assumption is, well, you know, the city can't do anything right, so they'll screw it up. So there's a lot of cynicism and there's a lot of, uh, of negativity behind that. But if we, in the few areas where we actually do succeed in doing this, we see dramatic improvements and we see them almost immediately. And, you know, there's no reason why we couldn't do this across the entire city. You know, again, the, the tragedy of, of Jay Ketty was uh, this was a guy who lives on the West Mountain, you know, rode his bike to work in the morning and rode home. So, again, there's this kind of false idea that, well, this may be okay for downtown folks, but people in the suburbs don't want it. I disagree with that. I think people all across the city would love to have more choices. People would love to have the opportunity to walk more and to bike more and to get some physical exercise and to just get out and enjoy their community. 
But if there aren't safe places to do it, then you're stuck driving. And that's that's a tragedy. It's something that we should be horrified and ashamed about. Well, and it's all a matter of safety. I, and again, you're right. I mean, whether we're talking about the things that went on in Aberdeen, et cetera, and, and people getting all upset about that, it's a matter of safety. It's cyclists can cycle now safely on those roads because there is a barrier, a physical barrier between the traffic and, and the cyclists. And, and that seems to be the crux of this issue. Where there is no barrier, you can't count on the fact that the, that the cyclist is going to get the respect and the space that they deserve. Painting a line on the road doesn't necessarily do it. That doesn't always cut it. And, and we, we've got to do something of a physical nature. Uh, I agree with you about Cannon Street. I mean, I, I, we supported that from day one. Uh, I, I think they could aesthetically make it look a lot better, and I'd like to think that that's going to happen at some point instead of just the concrete barriers. But but it's a good start, and, and we should be looking to do more of this instead of debating every time an issue comes up. Yeah, and Canada doesn't even have concrete. I mean, the, the barriers are rubber curbing yeah. and plastic knockdown sticks, and, and they've put a few uh, planter boxes along. Now, the good news is that uh, Canon is... is it was a three-year pilot project when it was first proposed, and the three years are over. Staff have actually written up a final report on the success of the project, and uh, it's really quite extraordinary. It's gone from basically zero bike rides on a daily basis because Canon used to be, I mean, you just, I'm, I'm a, a year-round, you know, kind of uh, lifelong cyclist, and I wouldn't ride on Canon. It was terrifying. So there's, it's got peak summer ridership of um, almost a thousand trips a day. It's up seventy um, percent, you know, just from the first year. And up, you know, infinitely from the zero before. Winter ridership is up, uh, you know, four times from what it was in the first year. So summer and winter, we're actually seeing people using this trip, this uh, route on a regular basis. So staff are calling it a success, and they're recommending that the project be made permanent. Now, the end, other interesting thing is when they first proposed it, one of the sticking points was this eight hundred and sixty-seven thousand dollar price tag, and everyone said, "Why is it going to cost so much? This is crazy." Well, it turns out it didn't cost that much anywhere near that much. They've got $350,000 left unspent in the budget. So how many infrastructure projects in this city go 30% or 40% under budget? That's kind of amazing in itself, but staff are recommending taking the rest of the money and using it to improve the physical protection to actually get a bit more safety for the, for the, for the cyclists. Because there are still a few hotspots at Wentworth and Wellington and Mary, I believe, are the three streets where 80% of collisions are occurring. So we have to do more to protect cyclists as they're riding across those cross streets. Well, uh, keep fighting the good fight. Keep writing about it. We'll keep talking about it. And hopefully this is going to be part of the dialogue as we head towards a municipal election in just a couple of months. Ryan, thanks as always. Great to have you on the program today. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Take care. Ryan McGreal, editor of Raise the Hammer. Got thoughts on this? Talk to your city councillor about it. And they'll be knocking on your door pretty soon. October 22nd, there's a municipal election. You want this to be an issue? It's up to you to make it an issue. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. What's in a name? Well, <laughs> as far as the Hamilton Board of Education is concerned, plenty, I guess. There are two new high schools that are uh, going to be built. Uh, one's way up in the South Mountain. It's going to be Nora Henderson uh, High School. We already know that. Uh, and one of these days they're going to get around to building it, I guess. The other, of course, is, is right downtown at Scott Park in what we call the Stadium District now, where Tim Hortons Field is. Now, uh, if you're a newcomer to Hamilton, uh, here's a, a fun fact. There used to be a high school right across the road in that grid big field. Uh, it was called Scott Park because that's the name of what that park is. And uh, it was there for many, many years. Uh, the board decided to shut it down a long time ago. Long story short, it got torn down and demolished. We know that. Okay. So now they said, look, at, they're going to close down a couple of other schools in the downtown area. Uh, and uh, as a result, they're going to have to build a, a new one, a better one, that's going to accommodate the student populations down there, and it's going to be built right there in the stadium district. 
but they can't seem to come up with a name for it. And it's going to open in a year, so they, they better get on their, uh, their horses and get this thing done. But why can't they seem to find a consensus on this? Let's bring Todd White into the conversation. He's the chairman of the board and the Ward 5 trustee for the uh, Hamilton District School Board. Todd, thanks for the time. Great to have you with us today. Yeah, thanks, Bill. Good morning. Uh, just if, have I encapsulated that pretty accurately about what, what's going on here? I mean, you know, uh, anybody who's driven by there understands that, you know, there's work going on there right now. This thing is about a year, I guess, away from opening. Well, next September, anyway. Yeah, yeah, a year September. Uh, 20 of ni- uh, September of 2019. Uh Maybe, since there seems to be some discussion on this, maybe outline what's going on with the advisory committee and why they seem to be at loggerheads with this. So, so we followed our, our kind of usual schedule to get a name um, at least a year in advance so we can build some momentum around the school. Um, of course, come up with logos and other things like that that you have to choose. Um, but that being said, uh, we have a process where we select a advisory committee uh, made up of mainly uh, parent council reps, parent reps, uh, uh, staff reps, they get the opportunity to look at all of our consultation feedback and all of the names that are suggested. We get a lot. Um, I think there's probably about 150 in this uh, case. Uh, and that could be one suggestion or a name that's been suggested several hundred times. So they whittle that down to uh, a couple names, um, two names in particular. Uh, they pitch them to our board of trustees, uh, and our board of trustees kind of did a, a second, uh, did a, a bit of a reevaluation um, because we weren't convinced at that time of last Monday that the community was aware and behind the name that was uh, recommended. All right, and, and let's talk about some of those names because I, I think that is maybe the crux of the conversation here, and that seems to be where the, 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 the conflict, if I, I can use that phrase, uh, seems to be. Yeah, yeah. So basically, we received two suggestions from the advisory committee. Um, both names, or at least one name, was was relatively unknown, but had a very positive, energetic story to it that could be quite inspiring to students. And that name is uh, Shannon uh, Kustachin. And uh, that essentially, the story behind uh, uh, this individual is that she was a, a young female, I believe, in uh, northern Ontario that was fighting for uh, a new school, and she was of Aboriginal or Indigenous. Yeah, she, she lived in Attawapiskat, which is, a, 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 of course, a, a village that's received an awful lot of attention for all the wrong reasons, sadly, uh, exactly. because of bad water and a number of other things. And, of course, the late Gord Downey from the Tragically Hip really championed that cause. Absolutely. And and so she fought for a new school in that area, which was eventually built, um, but it was built after her, her death, unfortunately, due to a, a car accident. So, so that's a rather inspirational story. It's certainly... Uh, uh, left its mark on the naming committee, which is why they put that forward as their number one choice. Uh, their second choice uh, was uh, tr- the name Trillium, um, which we didn't hear much about in the boardroom. It seemed to kind of be a, a neutral second option uh, that they put forward. Uh, but essentially when the trustees considered both of those names, uh, there were questions regarding uh, those suggestions as well as our consultation feedback. Uh, those two names, Trillium and, and Shannon Kustachin, received roughly, uh, I think it was one suggestion each, 
while there was a couple names that received several hundred. All right, you mentioned. So, I want to get into that because let's 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 try to define what the, some of the terms you're using. You said there was a the, obviously there's a subcommittee here that's working on this, but you did seek public input. Was this done in a scientific way, or or, or just what process did you use? So we use the same process for whether we review a policy or budget, whatever it might be. When we go out for feedback, we put a survey online. Um, it's anonymous. Uh, it allows folks to. Uh, sign in. We get students, staff, community members, uh, parents that participate. Uh, we ask them to identify who they are or what category they might fit into. Uh, then we ask them to suggest a name in this case. Um, so basically anyone can log on and, and, and suggest a name. Um, but because it's anonymous, and of course you can't track multiple entries, um, it's not scientific. But I think just judging from suggestions, you can gauge of course, some type of uh, community support or or support behind a name. Um, but like I said, it's not scientific. No, and, and, and that's why I know there was some consternation about uh, where they were going with this at the subcommittee. And, and because, well, the number one re- recommendation from that advisory, from the public input, well, was, of course, the late Bernie Custis, uh, the, who is the first qu- black quarterback, of course, in professional football uh, for the Hamilton Tiger Cats. But, I mean, and by the way, that's not a fair representation of what Bernie's contribution was because, I mean, he did a lot more to that. He was also a teacher, uh, principal in local schools, a great mentor and football coach and helped an awful lot of kids that were challenged, of course, uh, to get their lives back on track. He's an incredible human being. So I think there's some legitimacy there. But with that in mind, and I understand how non-scientific that might be, but why didn't that have more credibility? It seemed as if some of the members of the committee were just dismissive of that and saying, no, we don't even want to go there. The top yeah. the top two names got tossed off the list right off the bat. Yeah, so the, I think they started with about 150 names, um, and then they basically scratched off names and, and, and made a number of short lists. Um, I think that name, as well as the number two name, which was Nikola Tesla, uh, made it somewhere, I think, in the top 20 or 30. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they did fall off um, earlier in the process. They certainly didn't come to the top 10 or top 5. Uh, so so obviously there was some disconnect, at least the committee and its members didn't feel those names struck a chord with them. Um, the way that they went through their process was um, more or less the opportunity to suggest the names that they, as they saw them, discuss our guiding principles, some of the pieces that we look for. Um, and for some reason, those names just didn't uh, speak to them the way that uh, it seemed to through our, our feedback that we sent out community-wide. So that's really the, the discrepancy. So trustees in the boardroom understand that the advisory committee suggested a, a different name or a name with much less support. Um, we're certainly compelled by the, the story. But then balancing that with what the community feedbacks told us, we want to make sure we're getting this right. Uh, and we don't want to go out on a limb and su- suggest it's going to be one or the other without really going back and uh, double-checking to make sure everyone is is behind one of the names. Okay, but I want to go back to this idea about criteria and, and exactly what the board is looking for. And, and and I'm looking around at the names of some of the the schools, elementary and high schools, around the, uh, the, the city, Todd, and uh, and, and there are some fabulous names that are recognized there. Lincoln Alexander, of course, uh, Sir Alan McNabb, uh, great, great Canadians, great Hamiltonians but who have made significant contributions. Uh, Pauline Johnson, of course, up on the mountain, uh, right by your board office, uh, and, and a number of people like that. And, okay, I said, okay, so what, what do you like? Kathy Weaver, another 
uh, great person who did so much work in the in the inner city community for so many years. Okay. Uh, so, and so those are, I, I, I'd suggest like non, non, no brainers. I mean, you just figure, oh yeah, that's a great idea. That That's a great idea to name a school after somebody of that significance. But why is there so much trouble here? I mean, even you, one of the co-chairs here suggested that, well, we pretty much had the mindset that we wanted to, to name this after an ab- Aboriginal individual. Well, if that's the case, then why even seek public input? Yeah. And, and, and that's the piece that we try to balance. So when we look at, uh, what occurred in, in this case is that they looked through our criteria. We asked uh, individuals to consider names that of local significance, provincial significance, Canadian significance, etc. So when they went through that list, and we also asked them to look at uh, uh, different minority groups and, and issues like that. So as we went through, they, they certainly felt that an Aboriginal or an Indigenous name spoke to them and uh, met the criteria in the process. However, we do ask them to put forward um, usually three names, and usually those names are contrasting names; they're not necessarily similar. Similar, so you might see one from the feedback list, from the consultation. You might see one that was a little less popular, but somehow you know, spoke to them. But uh, that's for us to balance. You know, once we get it as trustees, so that's what we're doing right now by going back to the community, and particularly students, ask them what their exact feelings are. I, I mean, I, I know the story uh, of Shannon Kustachin and, and uh, what a remarkable young lady she was. And she, of course, died t- way too soon because of that tragic closing in which she died. But i, I got to tell you, if, if you were to ask 10 people on the street who she is, probably none of them would know. Uh, you know, it's it's people are going to say, well, why, what, what kind of name is that? And, and, and I get that, okay? I mean, even the Catholic Board had that. They had Blessed Kateri School up in the uh, the East Mountain. For, uh, and, and, of course, uh, that's a, a great story about a Canadian who was canonized and actually became St. Kateri. For those in, in the Catholic faith, they'd understand that. But do you want a school name that's going to stand out that right off the bat people are going to say, oh, yeah, that person, that, that's a great honor for them, as opposed to saying, who's that? Well, uh, well and that's it. If you ask me what I'm looking for when, when choosing a school name, it could be any name. I mean, you and I could probably sit in a room and come up with a dozen great names and not not a lot of time. Actually, I have uh, a list, but I won't get into that. You do. <laughs> <laughs> Is your name on it? No. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. Uh, the uh, but but we truly you can come up with a lot of very very effective names, but you want to make sure it creates some type of unity and excitement in a community, and you want them to be able to uh, uh, rally around that name, feel welcomed at their school be inspired by the name and, of course, have some type of, you know, meaning. So the name Shannon uh, Kustachian uh, is not one that, that, that most individuals know, but once they hear the story, they're, they're, they're taken um, by it quite quickly. So that's why we're going back to students. And actually, we're not opening up another community consultation, so to speak. We're actually going to target the students that will be in uh, the new school September of 2019. And we're going to present them with five names. So we're taking the two from the advisory committee. We've added three more to the list. Uh, and we're going to present some biographies and some explanation for each of those names. And we're going to ask students then to uh, show us or tell us what some of their preferences are. And that way we can kind of see what that impact is on students. Uh, and, of course, something that they'll feel welcomed uh, with when they enter that school in September 2019. Now, are you going to start with a clean slate or and listen to suggestions, or are you going to go back to those students and say, these are the names that we're thinking about, pick one of those? Yeah, so we're, we're not starting from scratch. So we were going with the two names from the advisory committee, and then we've selected the top three names uh, from the community consultation. 
So there, it's a combination of the consultation and what the advisory committee told us. I mean, because I know of the public input. I'm sure you've seen this, Todd, about the uh, the move that was on social media about Bernie Custis and a lot of people in the community. I got behind that, so I, I know where that's coming from. And I I, I saw the the comments from uh, Sue Dunlop, the superintendent, who's the co-chair of the advisory committee, suggesting it could have been one person voting 400 times. I doubt that. I think I think uh, Mr. Custis's uh, recognition in the community is more widespread than that. But uh, but you just wonder when something like this happens to get it right. I mean, obviously, you know, the, the previous incarnation of the school there, Scott Park, was a no-brainer. That's the name of the park, so that's the name of the high school. But, you know, you, you want this to – you've got one chance to get this right. That's what it comes down to. And well, I know that, for instance, uh, when you were doing the school up on the South Mountain, uh, because of the name change of the hospital down at the other end of uh, Hamilton Mountain, there was a lot of concern about maintaining the legacy of Nora Henderson. And you right, right. quite rightly stepped up, and I think that's a great move uh, to name the high school after that. But, boy, there's an awful lot of Hamilton history going on here, too, that the board seems to have set to one side here and say, no, we're going to look for something that's a little more eclectic. Yeah, and, and that's precisely it. I mean, the, when we saw uh, the presentation for Bernie Custis, uh, trustees were just wowed by, by that name. That story is phenomenal. And I think if you listen to the dialogue at our board meeting on Monday, uh, trustees were asking, how, how did that not make a top three list being presented to us? Um, it, trustees had difficulty putting those pieces together to understand how did that fall off the advisory committee's list. And uh, rightfully so, uh, the advisory committee is allowed to drop names, otherwise we wouldn't have them, uh, but uh, it just left trustees scratching their heads and wanting to make sure that we got it right. Of course, there's enormous community support for uh, Bernie Custis in particular. Um, this is why uh, it's important, I think, we go back to the students at the school and see what uh, their input may be. Uh, because at the end of the day, they're the ones that are going to be attending the school and, of course, uh, getting behind uh, whatever we select. So we're going to see what that impact is um, at, the, at the student level, and uh, that's where we want to make sure that there's a lot of student voice. When we looked at the feedback for the community consultation, um, there was a lot of participants, not as many students as you would think. So a lot of community members, adults uh, suggesting names. Uh, we want to give now that kind of final opportunity to the students. Well, that's probably because if you ask some of the students, they'd say, "I want to stay where I am at Delta and John A." So, and that yeah. that ship has sailed. So that's that's off the. But that doesn't necessarily mean they say they still can't have those answers. And look at in fairness, the board's between a rock and a hard place. I mean, when it comes to naming facilities like this. Uh, you know, there's that corporate entity thing, but I mean, this is different. Uh, you want this name to stand for something and, and, and to, to tell a story. I get that. Uh, the building that's going to grow up beside you, the Senior Center, of course, is going to be named after the late Bernie Morelli, the counselor for that area for many years, uh, because Bernie was, was one of the driving forces in making sure there were senior facilities downtown. And so we get that. That's, that's easy to, to understand. Uh, and you want the building beside it to have that same sort of situation. And, and we've got that legacy here. And you know that, Todd, from your time on the board. Oh, absolutely. And and we know if we get it right, it's a, it's a momentous teaching moment for students as well. Uh, and, and those stories mean a lot to different individuals. And you named some of those names uh, earlier on. And we've selected some great individuals that have uh, names on our schools. Well, and, you know uh, as well as I do. I mean, Link Alexander was a, a dear friend of mine, and he was so proud uh, that the board actually named a school after oh, him. And he just, it was, it was. Now I know there have been others. I think there's one in Toronto as well. But this was Hamilton. This was his town, and this was a school named after him. And he thought, boy, this is going to be here a long time after I am. And, and I said, absolutely, and it's deservedly so. Well, he's so popular that actually he was in the top ten for the name of this school. 
<laughs> even though we already have one. <laughs> I can understand so, that. Yeah, and then that's because of the the, the enormous uh, local impact that some of these individuals have had. So, so that's why, I mean, it, it's absolutely important we get it right. I mean, if you do an inventory of all of our current names, um, there's some great names there. There's also a lot of ones that are based on geography uh, or otherwise, but uh, um, very, very important. A lot of community significance uh, one way or the other. So, so really an opportunity to get that right because, like I said, if, if we don't, um, those names will stick with individuals for, for decades at, at, at the very least. What's the time frame now? I'm, obviously, you want to get this done. You want to you want to be able to, to tie because you you mentioned some of the other things. It may sound incidental to people, but it's it's all part of developing pride in in the new institution. About a, you know a logo, a, a, a nickname for the teams out of that school, etc. And because uh, this has been a somewhat controversial issue, let's face it, about school closures and amalgamation of of student bodies into this new facility, uh, and you want them to be able to start off on the right foot and have some pride in their facility. Well, and, and that that's so important that students uh, feel welcomed in, the, in in their school. So, if, if we, the longer that they have to wait and they can't see themselves in the school, you know, what's the point of all the work that we're doing? So, we're so close at this point. Of course, it's a celebration, um, whichever name we get behind, and uh, that's why when you when you look at this case in particular, um, it's so important. And the community itself is is very vocal. Uh, the students are vocal, so when you put it together, this 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 instance has every every opportunity to for us to make sure that we get it right. Todd, thanks so much for this. I wish you the best as this process unfolds, and uh, we'll certainly talk about this when you guys come down with a decision. Thanks for yeah, this today, though. And it looks like we're we're back in September, October, unfortunately, but uh, hopefully not too. Uh, too long after that. Okay, we'll talk again. Thanks again, Todd. Thanks, Bill. Todd White, chairman of the board for the Hamilton Board of Education. And and it, maybe I am lobbying a little bit for Bernie Custis, and, it, and it's not just because he was a football player. Uh, it's And it's, yeah, partly because he was the first black quarterback. I mean, that that's big news. Uh, he's he, he blazed a trail, and he, and he was a leader in, in civil rights and always wore that proudly. But you talk to some people in the Hamilton, Burlington area, and Oakville area for that matter, there are so many stories of, of challenged youth uh, that Bernie Custis uh, saw and worked with. And, and yes, he used football as a vehicle because he was a football coach. And there are an awful lot of kids that got a second chance in life because of that, because Bernie took them under his wing and shot them in the right direction and told them, hey, go see this person and that person. And the, their lives are better for it and the community is better for it too. And those are the sorts of stories that I think you need to tell when you say, hey, that school is named after a guy named Bernie Custis. Let me tell you his story. Anyway, we'll see what the the board comes up with. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. I want to talk about uh, what is going to be, I think, a rather contentious issue here in Ontario, uh, and that, of course, is the cap-and-trade program. Now, it's been in place in Ontario since January, instituted by the now-former Wynn government. Uh, Doug Ford, of course, is the premier-designate. He'll be sworn in in just a few days as the new premier in Ontario, and he vowed through the course of the campaign that if elected, he will scrap cap-and-trade. And he uh, reiterated that uh, earlier this week when he was making some comments. So he says it's going to be gone. Well, the uh, Quebec uh, Environment Minister uh, has pleaded with and will officially plead once he becomes the premier, Mr. Ford, to, to change his mind about this. Uh, I know there are some people in California who are another partner along with Quebec and Ontario in this cap-and-trade program that are suggesting that maybe this is a wrong-headed move. Uh, so we need to talk about this ahead of the fact before the government announces some new policy because it's replacing an existing policy that many people think was the right way to go. 
Joining us to talk about this is Steve Applin, who is the publisher of Emission Track, which monitors CO2 and carbon dioxide emissions from energy use. Uh, Steve, thanks so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Great to be with you. This is a debate we knew was going to happen in Ontario if, if Doug Ford won. I, mean, I, I, I got to assume, obviously, if Kathleen Wynne had won the election, that things would have been you know, status quo, and uh, Andrew Horvath probably the same thing, although they had some concerns about this. But throwing this program out all together... Uh, I want you to address the elephant in the room because those who have problems with cap and trade, Steve, first thing that always they utter is it's just a tax grab. There's nothing more. It doesn't do any good. It's just a tax grab for the government. Could you respond to that? Well, it uh, it, I, it in a, in a sense it is because it, it the proceeds from this uh, uh, that are raised in Ontario go into a fund in Ontario that are going to pay for something that the government has set up. People, if those who disagree with with what the government has done so far. Uh, with uh, respect to climate change measures, are going to be are going to naturally be quite uh, uh, suspicious of what the government has in mind for, you know, for the proceeds of cap and trade, mm-hmm. and especially when you consider that uh, we don't have much hope of meeting uh, uh, some climate change targets that we've set for ourselves uh, within a, that come due within a year and a half. Uh, it looks like almost certain that we're going to be buying credits under this cap and trade scheme or allowances under this cap and trade scheme in order to meet those. Uh, and people have some quite fair, legitimate con- concerns about the the veracity of of the allowances that are or the 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 basis for the allowances that have been granted thus far. Given that California, uh, one of the partners in this scheme, uh, their electricity system is ten times dirtier than Ontario's. I don't really understand what we could be buying from them. How what emission reductions they are making that would warrant us paying them for it. Yeah, I mean, that seemed like an unlikely partnership when that was announced that they were going to be part of this, because I think a lot of us know about some of the problems that California is doing. But yeah. it, it, the philosophy of it, though, I, Steve, seems to be you know, right-headed. It's, it's look at, uh, we're going to fund this program to try to reduce emissions, but you know, instead of simply saying, okay, we're all going to pay for it, we're going to get the money from the people that are producing the emissions, and or they can buy credits for it. But one way or another, that will fund the money that needs to go into this to try to reduce the program. So uh, on, on the philosophical level, it seems right. Is it, Pragmatically, though, is it working that way? Well, that's the that's the problem. Uh, there are there's no evidence that a cap and trade system. There's there's plenty of of, of experience with cap, cap and trade. Europe has had one since 2005. Uh, there's the regional greenhouse gas initiative in the U.S. Northeast, uh, basically New England. So our neighbors to the south. Uh, there's been one operating there for uh, uh, I think at least a decade, and there's no evidence that these schemes have reduced uh, CO2. If you if you go over to Europe and look at the leading European state, which is Germany, their emissions over the past 20 years have gone up. They've had, an, they've had an emission trading scheme since 2005. They've had huge investment in renewable energy since uh, the year 2000. And uh, their emissions have gone up. So it's, there's not much evidence. There's, there's no evidence that, this, that cap and trade reduces CO2. And there's plenty of evidence that it is almost counterproductive. What about the other? It's, it's cousin, uh, carbon pricing and carbon taxing, uh, which some provinces and some other jurisdictions have used in, in lieu of cap and trade. Is that any more effective? I think that, that it is something that is certainly more worth trying than cap and trade. Uh, there's, uh, there's been a scheme proposed called fee and dividend where, where you, uh, the, the sellers of, of carbon-based fuels 
pay for the carbon content or are taxed on the carbon content, the proceeds from that tax are simply given to the citizens in the taxing jurisdiction as a dividend. So if you, if you want to save money, then you don't buy gasoline, so you don't pay the tax on that gasoline, and you get a dividend at the end of the year, so you come out ahead. There, those have been proposed, and those, to me, sound a lot more straightforward than this really complicated. I don't know if you've looked at this cap-and-trade, what's covered and what's not, and the, the auctions and allowances. There's a lot of dodgy dealing in the European system that's quite well documented that just that just says that this creates an artificial market for for where insiders can game a system and it doesn't achieve its uh, its stated goal yeah i i know i tried to plow through some of the documentation on this but you know when it was going to be implemented your your eyes glaze over after about page 3 it's it's pretty difficult stuff uh, the, 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 that's why the carbon pricing seemed to be much more uh, of a pragmatic solution. I know British Columbia has had that in place for the last little while. Now, now I know that people just hate this whole concept altogether, just say, well, it's not working. But I've, I've talked to people in B.C. that said, yeah, it's good. It's good. Uh, yeah, we pay a little bit more for gasoline than you could do here in Ontario. But you know what? We get a dividend check. And, and so, you know, it's it, we figure it's, I hate to use the term revenue neutral because that's one of the great, uh, you know, lies that, that any government will try to just sell a program with. But it seems to be working there. But is it reducing the carbon footprint in British Columbia? Uh, I'm I'm kind of skeptical about that. There are claims both ways. It, it hasn't it hasn't produced enormous reductions. It hasn't produced significant reductions. What produces significant reductions is when you bring in if you've got a uh, you know you've got a sector that is powered with some sort of energy and you swap that energy out for zero carbon. In for example, in Ontario, we swapped out coal using nuclear, and that produced the biggest reduction in the electricity sector in North America. That reduces emissions, and we're talking we're talking close to 40 million tons per year. So it's not trivial; it's it's quite significant. A, the carbon tax in BC, I don't see, has produced emissions on that scale. So uh, I'm I'm a little bit doubtful of that. However, if you want a carbon taxing, if if you want a carbon pricing scheme, that one seems the more logical way to go because it's a tax. It's upfront. The price doesn't fluctuate. It doesn't depend on this market that involves a bunch of self-interested players the way that cap-and-trade does. So it seems to be much more straightforward. And and, uh, and if I were going to support a carbon pricing scheme, it would be a tax and not cap-and-trade. And, and that's what the pre- federal government seems to be pushing, which is why I, I'm scratching my head, and I think a lot of other people were, when Ontario decided to go and say, we've got, well, we're going to do cap-and-trade, uh, because I, I couldn't really see the business case for it. But it, it, that's the decision made. All right, let's, let's talk about the ramifications, because this... Doug Ford says he's going to scrap this thing anyway. So, and and you know he he wants to. He's going to do this. I'm sure he'll yep. listen to the environment minister from Quebec. But he seems to have made up his mind. And you know he reiterated again on Tuesday at Queen's Park. They look at it. It was a promise. I'm going to do this. Uh, yep. Put more money into people's pockets. And 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 that's always a great political sell for anybody. Yep. But but in lieu of cap and trade, what do we do? Okay, well, if to, you know, I'll, I'll put on my hat as the advisor to the Premier-elect. <laughs> Please, as, as if, soon as you and I finish our conversation, you know the Premier's going to call you and he's going to say, Steve, what are we going to do here? Done. Yeah, exactly. Well, well, if he wants to put more money into Ontarians' pockets and wants to do something about cutting our carbon emissions, well, this be in dividend. 
because that's exactly what happens. A, a dividend goes into the pocket of every Ontario resident, and if you don't, if you want to save money, then you simply curtail your usage of fossil fuels. In you know, in in my case, it's very easy for me to do this. I live downtown, so I just don't drive. I just I don't how I I can walk to get my groceries. I don't have to drive to get my groceries. For somebody like me, it's quite easy. I would make money on this dividend. So I'm speaking from self-interest. Mm-hmm. But I think that that would apply to a fair amount of of other people. So uh, that's one way to to have a carbon pricing scheme where carbon is taxed at its source and those who don't use it, don't, those who don't admit it end up coming out financially ahead at the end of the year. So that's that's one thing that could be done, and he's uh, the, the the Ford team is talking about has talked about putting to some fund in place uh, that supports clean energy and, and that kind of stuff, and that's that's great. Uh, there's there's all sorts of uh, uh, clean. I hope that I would hope that they don't uh, support clean energy the way that the former government did, which is put uh, money into what I call the dogs, wind and solar, that are just uh, highly expensive because they're inefficient. Uh, Air source heat pumps, ground source heat pumps, that might be something that's worthy of, of money from a government program. Another nuclear plant. I'm a pro-nuke, and I know that this reduces CO2, and that's that's one way that you will achieve certain reductions. Why did we turn our back on that? That seemed to be the, the, the methodology at some point. Well, maybe it was the McGitty government, I guess, that really decided to make a right turn on this and simply say, we're not even going to do that anymore. We're, we're, yeah. we're, we're going to wind and solar. Yeah, that's uh, you know a, a book could be written about that decision. It was it was made after their they failed to achieve an agreement with the federal government, the Harper government, over how uh, they would purchase federal reactors from from mm-hmm. NACL. Uh, a whole book could be written about that, but uh, they made a turn into green energy that I think was was not the right. Uh, it was not the right move for the province. It's just driven our electricity costs up. By the time they had done that, this is the irony, by the time they had done that, Ontario had already achieved a massive reduction just by bringing, by replacing coal with nuclear. So, yeah, why did we turn our back on it? I, there's a lot of popular politics that are involved with this that I wish would recede uh, because we're talking about, we're talking about uh, you know, facts and demonstrable emission reductions from a technology that we invented in Ontario. Yeah, and, and therein lies the problem. When, when something goes awry, uh, we all of a sudden we're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater and simply say, you know, we're not going to do that anymore. It's like, you know, the, the e-health scandal from years ago. Well, we don't need e-health. Well, of course we do. It just if we, need, we need it done properly. And, yes, and, yes, and it's the same yes. thing with you know, alternative energies. I, certainly, I'll just explore that. But, but what a dog's breakfast this has turned out to be with the wind power and the, and the solar power initiatives. I, oh, my God. And, and how are we going to reduce electricity? Part of this is, this is the irony. Part of the proceeds from cap and trade, we're going to reduce electricity prices. Good grief. If you don't want electricity prices too high, don't bring in expensive, inefficient sources that are just going to drive the price up. All right. Now, I, we don't know the details because we don't know the details about a lot of the stuff that Doug Ford promised, and that, that's got to come eventually. But he has suggested that in lieu of cap and trade, he's going to do what he calls an emissions reduction fund yep. that would invest in new technologies within the province to cut greenhouse gases. Uh, sounds all well and good, but is it going to do anything to encourage us to do this? It's one thing to say, hey, if you guys want to do that, you know, Steve, you want to get into alternative stuff, you want to get a thermal heating, yeah, we can do that. Uh, here, here's, but if you don't, that's fine too. Is, is that the attitude? 
Uh, I, it's, I guess we're, we're going to find out because, because the, the, the details have been pretty thin. You know, it's a, it's a pretty new government. They were elected uh, a week ago yesterday. So uh, I, guess, I guess we're going to find out. What I hope is that the, is that the, uh, uh, the, the clean technology that, that is funded under this thing, if it comes to pass, is something that is proven to reduce emissions and not something that, that some green pundit says is going to reduce emissions and, and is unable to point to any evidence of emission reductions in any jurisdiction. That is what I hope. So if, if again, if we go back to, you know, we should electrify heat, and that, that was one of the ideas that our former government had that yeah. I totally agreed with. They didn't go forward with it. They got, they got out-lobbied. But if, they, but if we went back to that, the electrification of heat, this, you know, we've got this target coming up in, in a year and a half, and no prospect for, uh, for meeting it unless we are able to make a big dent in heating and transportation. Well, heating is our low-hanging fruit, and if we, want, if we want to decarbonize heat, we have to electrify it. And, you know, one way to do this is with uh, air source heat pumps and, and, and you know, flatten out the, the heating load curve, as it were, uh, through the wintertime. And if you do that, then you can meet that with a predictable source of zero carbon uh, electrical energy. So that, that's one way, and, and that's a credible way that would, that would actually produce emission reductions. This is something that I hope they, they, they have a look at. So if, 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 if they go the route of creating a fund, well, then screen the technologies that are eligible for this fund for, for, for a record of having reduced emissions. We got about a minute left, but you also touched on, on as you say, vehicular emissions. Uh, the alternative, obviously, is to get people out of their cars. Not everybody's going to live downtown as you do in, in, yeah. in Ottawa, but I mean, the reality here is we, we're way, way behind when it comes to public transit and mass yeah. transit here in Ontario. We, you know, you talk, reference some of those European cities, and they are light years ahead of what yes. we, we need to be doing here. Yes. That, uh, then, well, I, I think that I think that the premier-elect has signaled that he's that he's on board with. Some sort of, uh, uh, of um, expansion of transit, mass transit infrastructure. I hope that happens. I hope that they electrify the GO system, electrify the GO system, and you. And that's another. That's another bit of low hanging fruit. It mm-hmm. costs money, but it, if you want to uh, reduce emissions and you want to clean up the system, and, and not just clean up the system, make it a lot quieter. I, those GO trains are pretty loud. Uh, that's one way to do it. I hope that uh, you know, and that's. Part of the entire, you know, we're talking about mass transit. I know, you know, in, in Ottawa, we've got the LRT. Uh, the premier-elect has signaled that he's on board with the next phase of LRT, and that's great. That's going to be electric. That's excellent. That's what we need to be doing. Uh, in Toronto, that's where the lion's share of this happens. Uh, there's a lot of uh, initiatives. Electrify them. Make, make electrify, uh, electrified transit and, and, and do as much of that as possible. Yeah, well, we've got an LRT proposal in Hamilton here, but unfortunately, uh, we're in the Larry O'Brien situation that you guys were in in Ottawa a few years ago. We're not sure if we want oh. it now, so oh, okay, we'll, yeah. we'll have to get that figured out. Steve, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for your perspective on this. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Take care. Steve Applin, publisher of Emission Track, uh, which monitors CO2, carbon dioxide. A pretty frank discussion about what we need to do going forward. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.